everyone, and welcome to Social Sport. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On Social Sport, I feature conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. These athletes are climate change activists, they're mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. But what ties all of these athletes together is that they're committed to exploring the connection between sport and activism in their lives. I was honored to speak about the Runners Alliance with two incredible women, LaToya Shante Snell and Taylor Dutch. If you're not familiar with the Runners Alliance, it was launched by Runners World and Women's Health to help women and all people who experience harassment reclaim their run. Taylor is a sports and fitness writer who plays a large role in coordinating the alliance for Runners World. And LaToya is one of the five Runners Alliance ambassadors known for her activism and for her popular blog, Running Fat Chef. These women have so many powerful things to say, so I tried to just let them do the talking for most of this episode, and they did not disappoint. Finally, I just want to leave a quick warning that sexual assault is mentioned in this episode in case that is triggering to you. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode with the amazing Taylor and LaToya. Taylor and LaToya, welcome to Social Sport. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. I'm really excited for this conversation. I've already enjoyed talking with the two of you off air, and you're just such entertaining people that I kept saying, can I press record already? Like, <laughs> I want to get all of these stories. Love it. <laughs> so everyone else can hear about the awesome people I'm speaking with today. Can you tell me who you are and where you are right now? Taylor, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, my name is Taylor Dutch. I am currently in my house in Chicago. Um, I've been a contributing writer and editor um, at Runner's World for the past, I guess, been three years now. I'm super excited to, um, you know, talk about this most recent opportunity, um, you know, putting together the Runner's Alliance Ambassador Program, which includes LaToya. Yeah, it's a little short bit about me. (laughs) Awesome. How about you, LaToya? Um, well, my name is Latoya Shante Snell. I have to kind of add in the three names now because I'm kind of stuck with it. Um, I think my dad will be very happy and proud. Um, I'm a food and fitness blogger of Running Fat Chef. It's something that I've, um, it's a job platform that I use to put up my food and fitness adventures um, that typically um, involves running, but is not limited to things like powerlifting, talking about finding and owning your power um, when you go into the gym environments, particularly for people who are part of marginalized communities that is not limited to race, but we also speak about, you know, being LGBTQ, walking into spaces as a woman and not feeling intimidated to lift up weights. And somehow um, this little adventure turned into something huge where it transformed my experience of being in the culinary industry to almost full-time taking on um, social activism and in regards to sports and in regards to intersectionality and in different areas. And as Taylor said, um, I am currently a Runners Alliance ambassador and 
so happy and grateful to be part of this program because I love that we're able to expand on conversations about runner safety and we're able to go into other layers of, you know, how does intersectionality play into it and the importance of it, even if you cannot relate to some of the subject matters. And just hearing your introduction, Latoya, it's so clear that you're such a great ambassador for the Runners Alliance. I mean, everything you stand for, just, you know, being yourself and normalizing different conversations seems so integral to the Runners Alliance. So before we get too deeply, and I want to talk a little bit about the why behind the Alliance. I know it was launched in 2019 to help women and all people who experience harassment reclaim their run. And I know that it started with a survey that found that 84% of women have been harassed while running. Taylor, could you tell me a little bit more about that number? How did you arrive at that 84%? Yeah. So as you said, Runners Alliance, Alliance launched in the fall of 2019, but it was um, you know, definitely an initiative that had been in the works for a couple years. And I think what really drew attention to this issue was um, Michelle Hamilton writing this incredible piece um, for Runner's World in 2017, which was called Running While Female. And that was the first survey, really, that um, it surveyed, I think the number was 2,000 runners about, you know, what they experience on their run, um, if they experience harassment, what kind of harassment, and the information that came from that survey was was heartbreaking and unfortunately not super shocking if you're um, you know a woman who runs. And that story really can, I think raised awareness to the issue initially. And uh, you know I wasn't part of the the launch in the fall, but from my understanding, the editors decided that the Runners Alliance was a very necessary step. Um, in this, this meeting that they had together, they were talking about, um, I don't know if you're super familiar with the Runner's World site, but there's um, like a toolkit option um, basically on the side. So it has, you know, pace calculator, um, different tools that, that you can use for training, things like that. And they were brainstorming of, you know, different um, like new tools that they could implement on the site. And from my understanding, one of the the male editor suggested like, oh, it'd be great to have an option for, you know, a meetup. If you're, if you're traveling to a new city, you know, maybe you could like meet up with other runners and this could be a tool. And all the women in the room, from my understanding, were like, um, no, no right. <laughs> <That's not policy." laughs> um, and that opened up a dialogue into, you know, runner safety once again. And they realized um, that they wanted to do another survey and the survey from, or the second survey is where they came with the number of 84%. And um, that coincided with the launch in the fall. And so, yeah, the, the initial launch was in the fall. It provided incredible, um, you know, storytelling, you know, suggestions for, for a lot of runners, raised awareness to, to the issue. Um, but in the second phase of Runners Alliance with the ambassador program, we're really trying to um, you know, highlight the experiences of underrepresented communities because they often face, unfortunately, you know, more harassment and violence while running. And that's something that needs to be recognized, needs to be highlighted um, in order to you know, hopefully encourage more runners out there to, um, you know, be more supportive, be more inclusive with each other and hopefully create safer spaces for one, one another. 
So there's this amazing ambassadors program that was just launched that you started to talk about, Taylor. But what are the the specific initiatives of this alliance? There's this ambassadors program, but how do you go about creating a safer running community? And because it seems like such a huge goal, could you make that like a little more tangible for listeners? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a, it's a really big goal. And there are definitely days where it feels very overwhelming, um, to be honest. But I do think so much of it is power in storytelling and power in, um, you know, runners being vulnerable and open about their experiences and raising awareness to the issue and working towards um, you know, solutions and um, you know, fostering more of an understanding into what each runner experiences. Like every runner has a different experience when they step out the door, depending on you know, who they are, um, their gender, where they live, their ethnicity. And it's so important to understand that. I mean, I, I had an interview yesterday with um, this woman who lives in the UK. Her name is Namra. She started this um, you know, run club uh, called Hijabi Runners out in, in Leeds, UK. And, you know, we talked about why that was important for her to start that community. And one of the reasons she gave, in addition to, you know, mental health fitness benefits for Muslim women, was the fact that Islamophobia is a huge issue, especially in the UK and around the world. But one of the reasons she wanted to get more Muslim women running was so they could build fitness to run away from a situation if they were the target of Islamophobia. And... To, to know that and to know just how heartbreaking that is, that that would be a reason, um, you know, to, to gain fitness is, you know, absolutely something that more runners need to know and, and need to like be actively inclusive with each other to make more runners feel comfortable to be out there. Um, yeah, I kind of rambled there, but <laughs> for sure. Well, I would love to get more into the idea of intersections because I think intersectionality is just such a big piece of the Runners Alliance that we're not just talking about women as one big umbrella because safety for women looks different depending on their other intersecting identities, whether they're a Muslim woman, whether they're a woman of color, a queer woman. And so I'd love to talk more about you know either of you, whoever wants to take this the idea of intersectionality and why it's so important when it comes to safety. No, um, sure, I'll jump on. Um, intersectionality, um, you know, a lot of people just hear the word and they're like, okay, where exactly does this come from? You know, um, what's the importance of it? Are we kind of like overinflating the importance of it? And realistically, it's not. It's actually something, it's a term actually derived in the 1980s, um, if I'm correct. Um, if, hopefully I have my historical um, facts correct. Um, that and sounds I believe, right. I trust you. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe the person that um, created the term and coined the term intersectionality, her name is Kimberly. Um, Crenshaw. And this was really used in, in reference to legal jargon um, and, you know, refer, referring to the the way that you can deal with one topic, but then it breaks down into other directions. So let's say that we take, for instance, that a crime happened, 
okay so you have to crime as your you know as your larger topic and then you say what kind of crime well it was a hate crime like whoa okay now that's intersectionality coming into play what kind of people were targeted in this crime becomes another another branch that kind of extends out and the more that we touch on those things you realize how much certain communities are targeted and that's how intersectionality plays into beyond just sports but just in our everyday lives the reason why we need it really and when we talk about intersectionality in sports um, per se especially when in running an environment i'll use myself as an example when i started running uh when i think about running in general as an 85 kid i'm 35 years old the people i would see on tv would probably be jackie jordan um percy i would see you know, track runners, but there was only a certain time of year that you would see, you know, track runners. And I say as an ultra endurance athlete, it's a little sad that when I thought about marathon running, the first thing I associated with was whiteness. I did not think of, you know, I would think of maybe a sprinter, you know, maybe you see a person of color, we cheer, you know, cheer for that person, you know, once or twice, like maybe a whole week. And then after that, it was just kind of forgotten. There were certain programs, at least in my neighborhood, you know, like I grew up in Crown Heights, East New York and Bed-Stuy. And during the eighties and nineties, during the crack epidemic, you don't really think of sports as something that would be provided in these black and brown areas. Uh, most of the time, if it was anything that was available, it was something cliche like basketball. Basketball was the way that you uh, you would kind of uh, go according to the stereotype of Jamal is trying to leave the hood. So he used his basketball scholarship to get him out of a place. Instead of building up the place that you're in, you're looking for the escape to another place that is painted as, you know, picket fences and, you know, uh, a better home. And it's usually not in black and brown neighborhoods, at least not the way that it was painted in mainstream media, not the way that it was painted in magazines. When we, when we even talk about it, when we talk about it as black, brown and indigenous people and other people of color, when we talked about our neighborhoods, we did not associate it with this neighborhood being safe. We did not associate it with a positive, you know, a, a positive approach. And I, you know, and it's unfair for me to speak on every community because despite me being black and identifying in different levels of intersectionality as a queer woman, as an athlete with disabilities, I definitely cannot represent all people. But what I can say from my personal experience is that there were a lack of programs being provided compared to now in 2020, where it's improved, but it's not this dramatic jump compared to some of my white counterparts who grew up having access to swimming pools, um, having access to tracks that, you know, that were clean because there is like two or three tracks nearby where I live. But ask me how much, you know, is maintained, you know, ask me about how safe it is, you know, when you talk about intersectionality, maybe the tracks are available, but are they actually open, are they available to the public, I literally live across the street from a park where they have a tennis court, and the tennis court is private. And it's not like it's private property It's literally on a New York City park. So if these things are not available and, and it's just dangled in front of your face, it's just showing you another opportunity that's not presented for you and not available for you. When I noticed that my neighborhood has entered gentrification probably about 10 years ago, and I started seeing the changes. At first, 
a lot of us were really excited. Look at all the new restaurants, look at all the things that's changing. And I would see some of the faces of the elders in the neighborhood and they're like, honey, that's not for us. Hmm. And it's a very somber feeling when you know that the neighborhood is changing to remove you from it as if you are the bad piece that don't belong. When, it, when we take that type of feeling and that type of conversation into intersectionality and the power it has, when we talk about these things, it is to actually bring up that awkwardness. The things that, you know, the people of color of different backgrounds, different races, religions, um, gender identities, non-gender identities, the things that we don't talk about. It's the pink elephant that's always looming in the room. But if whiteness is involved to a, pl to a place where they do not feel comfortable talking about it, that is the norm. And as, as a marginalized community, we are forced to embrace it and accept it. Otherwise, you possibly will be outcasted. You will be looked at as the person who is problematic. You are troublesome. Do not invite this person. And that's the, that's the reason why we need these things. Yeah, so many things that you said, LaToya, you know, such strong examples. And one thing you said that I found very powerful when you were talking about those tennis courts was that's not for us. And I think that simple statement in a lot of ways gets at the root of intersectionality that this world is not, in a lot of ways, it's not created for all women. Different yeah. women have different considerations and how they move around the world depending on their other identities. And to me, that's a big part of the alliance too. And I know that you have five ambassadors that all have different intersecting identities, different concerns, different things they bring to the table. Could you tell me a little bit more about them and the ambassadors program in general, what exactly it is? Yeah, I can jump in there to start. I I was approached back in June to, you know, help coordinate the ambassador program. And, and it's an opportunity that I I feel so incredibly grateful to, to be in, in this position. Um, but, you know, essentially we um, reached out to um, these incredible leaders in the running community who are truly making the running community a better place in so many different ways, Latoya obviously being one of them. But we also have Jordan Marie Daniel, um, Addie Bracey, Carolyn Sue, and Claire Green who are our ambassadors and each one is doing um, incredible things in different spaces, whether it's raising awareness to the epidemic of missing and murdered ind indigenous women, um, you know, lifting the voices of uh, runners in the BIPOC uh, communities, which is what Carolyn does with Diverse We Run, Claire Green as a professional runner doing um, incredible work, um, educating and raising awareness and providing resources um, to help, especially people in the elite running community learn more about the Black Lives Matter movement and take action there. Um, Addie Bracey, who you, you interviewed last week, mm -hmm. uh, founder of OutRun, who's you know creating communities for LGBTQ plus runners and encouraging LGBTQ plus people to embrace running. And, you know, LaToya, I don't want to speak fully for LaToya, LaToya doing incredible work advocating for, I mean, so many things, but I think like, um, you know, the piece that, that really resonates with me is that, you know, body politics piece that you talk about so much and just loving, appreciating, acknowledging the body that you're in, no matter, 
you know, where it's at and, you know, acknowledging the experience and the power in the body that you have. So, you know, I basically gave the short version of what, you know, some of the things that they're advocating for, but so much of that translates into, into runner safety and creating awareness, understanding, and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, encouraging more people to um, include more runners and, you know, build strong communities around that. So. Well, I am, I am so honored that I've had the chance to get to know multiple of these women. Now I, with LaToya, I've had three of these women on the podcast. So people will have to go back and look at Addie's recent episode. And I had the opportunity to talk with Carolyn as well. You're all doing such incredible work. And I want to hear a little bit more about LaToya's story and what you bring to this movement. I know you've spoken pretty publicly about your own story of harassment and you wrote an article on The Root a little while back entitled, I'm a plus size runner and I got heckled at the NYC marathon. Would you be willing to tell a little bit about that story? Sure. Um, you know, um, you never know what will actually make you viral, um, whether you're looking for it or not. And I definitely did not see this one coming. I thought it would be something along the lines of maybe I said something super colorful <laughs> and um, I did not actually picture it being uh, fat shamed that a New York City marathon would be one of them. Uh, the reason why I started the blog Running Fat Chef is uh, I had a friend, I had, well, several friends who was like, hey, you're utilizing your social media platform um, to share your adventures, but you're, um, the way that you write, you know, is so colorful and elaborate. Why don't you turn it into a blog space all over again? I'm not unfamiliar with it. I used to do open mics and poetry um, before my son was born. And I felt like, all right, that was one chapter of my life. Now I'm a parent. You know, sometimes you lose a part of your identity when you become a parent. It's like one of those areas that sometimes we do not give uh, enough credit to. Around 20, in 2017, um, I started feeling a little weird and a little off. Couldn't figure out what was going on with me. Turns out I was actually pregnant. Um, and I learned about that in August. Um, so I miscarried with twins um, during this time. It's not an unfamiliar territory for me. I was later on diagnosed with endometriosis, which is basically a painful condition um, that it makes you feel like you're burning. Um, there's so many layers to it. It makes you feel like you're on fire um, at times. And for some people, they don't feel any type of symptoms. And for others, it is exceptionally heightened. And that's definitely the case in my situation. Once I got the diagnosis after, I don't know, I, I stopped counting after four miscarriages, I completely mentally just shut down. And I was like, I'm not doing any more marathons. I'm not running. I'm going to shut down my blog. And I allowed a couple of friends to kind of, you know, be that voice of reason and say, hey, listen, how about you commit to the New York City Marathon? It's not exactly a cheap race. It's about 200 plus dollars. You've already trained for it. You know, you're still in training. See it through. So I signed up for the New York City Marathon, the Chicago Marathon, and the New York Roadrunner 60K. And I felt like that was going to be my exit out of the sport. I was going to do these three, write my race reports, tell people about my adventures, and then thank people for following my platform for that long. Clearly, um, the universe has a very weird um, way of forcing you to stay into things that you are destined to be in. So around mile 21 and 22, um, there's a loop that takes you out of 
pretty much the Bronx and it got me into an area called Marcus Garvey Park in Manhattan, it's literally like five miles away from the finish. And that's like sometimes the hardest part of the race mentally um, and on your feet in your body is taxing. Um, there was a white man who I described as a tall, balding white man. He screamed out, it's gonna take your fat ass forever. So when you hear those things, people always have this narrative of what they would say and what they would do at that moment. If I was you, I would do this, this, and this. And the reality of it is that you have fight, flight, and freeze. Um, and for me, I went through that freeze moment of, did he just say what I think he did? And I immediately said, what did you say? And he repeated it again. He said a couple other expellatives. I, in turn, was not as graceful. <laughs> um, you know, these are the things I could, I mean, I could you only could say but so much in 800 words. I was not as graceful. Really? And, I, and I will wholeheartedly advocate and, um, you know, and tell people to express yourself in the best way possible without getting yourself um, going through the legal system. <laughs> That's why I will say this much. So if you have to actually say, you know, I don't like the way that feels, then please say that. Um, and do not feel bad about vo vocalizing that. I think that too many women are told to censor a part, a, a initial part of their raw feelings because we're scared of looking combative, looking angry, looking overly aggressive or quote unquote, not feminine enough. And mm -hmm. I went back and forth. There was two women on the course that said, honey, it's not worth it. And they were right, you know, but it doesn't stop the words from entering your head. He reminded me of something that I've told myself countless times before any heckler out there have ever told me that I'm not worthy. I've already told that to myself over the years and it was for different factors. And most times it was always related to my body. Um, and second, the secondary found function would be to my mind to think that I am not eligible. I'm not in the position of power. I'm not in a position to ever make a decision that would impact other people. So I wrote about this lightly on my blog. I only touched on it probably for like a paragraph. And not even a week later, I had the root.com that reached out to me through my email. And I thought it was a joke. I thought it was another person that was just trying to heckle me. I looked at the email ending and I'm like, oh, this is kind of real. And they was just like, you have a really good humor, which you like to write for us. And I was just like, whoa, um, I don't think so. Cause you know, he, you, you, uh, when you've told yourself for so many years that you're not qualified to sit in certain seats, you will actually unknowingly remove yourself from your own, you will actually stop yourself from your own personal growth. Um, and a lot of us do that, especially people who identify as women. We tend to walk into the room and feel like we are not deserving of being or capable of being leaders, even when we are assigned a leadership role. TheRoot.com helped me acknowledge that I do have a great voice and that I do have a powerful voice. It may not be one that will be liked by some, but it is one that can be respected. Uh, I told that narrative 800 words or less and I woke up and my entire life changed. Um, it scared me. I've had people that have actually taken pictures of me while I was sleeping on the train, um, just kind of dozing off. And it's like, it's a different world that you have to adapt to. And even then the first year I was in such denial of my voice. I was just like, somebody's gonna forget about this in 
you know, two months, somebody's going to forget about this in four months. And the reality of it is the more I kept speaking, the more I was forced to acknowledge my power. I didn't realize how many people would be affected by an 800 word narrative. And the more I took it on, I'm just like, why am I fighting this so much? And, the, and I realized that it's not anybody else out there who's defeating me. It was me crippling and paralyzing myself. I want to get a little bit into that because, I mean, I love what you're saying about embracing your own power and how you said how you didn't feel qualified to sit in certain seats. And I find that so interesting and powerful because you are such a leader now in this community. And not only are you a leader, but you've really, in a way, pulled up seats for other people through your work. And so I want to hear a little bit more about, I know you're now a body politics activist. That's the term you use, what does that exactly mean and how does that connect to safety? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that body positivity sometimes get a bad rep. I think that anything that's going to actually change, um, sometimes for the betterment and people don't see it that way initially, uh, we are conditioned to kind of not really embrace change. And that's in anything, you know, but when we speak about body image, there's so much money <laughs> invested in, you know, making people feel like crap. You know, when we look at a diet industry that makes money, exploits, um, exploits, you know, the particularly the female anatomy um, and commercials and marketing. This is the reason why I wanted to separate myself just slightly from body positivity um, and really think about it as body politics. Sometimes there are things that we are feeling about ourselves that is not as visible. We focus so much on the body image, but we don't focus so much on the mind, the way that we speak to ourselves, the way that the toxic ways that I spoke to myself and at times still talk to myself. There are things that go beyond just the thing, but beyond the things that you can see, like, you know, people being a person with disabilities is definitely one of them. And, and sometimes these disabilities are not visible. And what I recognize in this space is that if people cannot see it, then they don't believe it. They have reasons to question it. If it is something that is visible, like, you know, uh, you know, if it's something as visible as being plus size, not something as and being plus size is not a disability. There is nothing wrong with being plus size. Um, but if you carry your weight in a certain way, if you do not look like the stereotype that's ingrained in people's heads, they are forced, not even so much forced, they feel obligated to ask questions that are almost like a violation of space. Well, why are you so fat? If you're running, then you know, shouldn't we associate this with weight loss? And instead, we we could identify this as a reasons or a way to explore joy, to explore pride. And instead, we've attached it with so many things that's toxic that we we associated things like diet culture. <laughs> I'm I'm sick and tired of knowing that a part of what I've done and the first year at times felt like I contributed to diet culture, whether I knew it or not. When I was asked to work on campaigns and I realized hmm, there's uh, there's not anyone else that looks like me. It was almost like fulfilling a quota. Uh, you know, sometimes we think about tokenism as something that only happens in race and it does not happen in just race. It happens in body diversity. It happens when you see an athlete with disabilities and you only see one person who might be paraplegic and you don't see a paraplegic of color. You may not see a person who represents, a, you know, a Muslim community um, in that picture. 
putting one person is not enough when, and then using excuses like, well, there wasn't enough talent. Um, there's not enough stories out there. Give people the opportunity and the platform to feel liberated to tell those stories. And once they tell those stories, respect the vulnerability that it takes to get there. We do not want to feel exploited. We do not want to feel like we are being used, regardless if a paycheck is provided or not. You know, uh, sometimes people feel like, well, you know, I offered you this product. That's the end of our work. No, revisit those communities, explore the conversations, listen, thoroughly listen. That's one of many reasons why I identify more with body politics versus the marketing techniques that's been applied to the body positivity movement. Most of these things start off as a great thing until so many hands get involved with it that it turns into a marketing technique. And that I do not want to be a part of. I want to be able to look into the larger issue of there's not just, oh, well, this is body positivity, but we have disclaimers of if you're over this size, then that's not body positivity, that's promoting obesity. Removing uh, parts of the history like the fat acceptance movement. The fat acceptance movement was around before body positivity, I would say that that started around the late 1990s, early 2000s of where the coin, uh, where the coin term body positivity come from. But people like to take away the fat acceptance movement and they turn that into a whole campaign of promoting obesity. When the reality of it is just embracing your body at its present state, it does not mean that a person cannot change. It does not mean that a person doesn't even want to lose weight. What it means is that I should be and can be happy in the body that I'm in while I'm staying the same, working towards a goal, or dealing with or dealing or working with variables that are beyond my control. So I like to look at the body, the mind, and the soul, and what drives people to find their version of happy. So and many of these topics, sorry, Taylor, go, go ahead if you want to add something to this. <laughs> no, I just wanted to, you know, thank LaToya for just your constant courage in, you know, talking about, about these um, issues and sharing your story. And, you know, oftentimes, like, it is not easy, um, you know, to be that vulnerable and to, and to share, um, you know, all of the layers to, to that story, but there's so much power in that. And, you know, I was telling Latoya a couple of days ago, like one example of, you know, such a positive effect that can come from sharing your story um, was Latoya participated in our first webinar um, about two months ago. We discussed running safety and Latoya spoke beautifully about the power of, you know, addressing intersectionality within runner safety. We didn't know it at the time, but um, this woman named Brooklyn in, in Florida um, had been tuning in. She unfortunately like that week had um, been like nearly abducted on a morning run and like made it to safety, thank, thank goodness. But she was looking for resources, for, for ways to educate herself so she could you know, stay safe um, and you know, help create safer spaces in her community. And when she heard LaToya speak, she felt um, you know, the courage to share her story. And she reached out to me over Instagram and said like, thank you for putting this panel together. Um, you know, hearing LaToya speak really inspired me and she shared her experience. And she actually like turned that experience into a way to advocate and create 
you know, safer spaces because she used her virtual New York City marathon to raise money for Despite the Dark, which if you haven't heard of it, is this Mm -hmm. campaign based out of Chicago that is creating communities um, for women to uh, feel empowered to run at night, to create safer spaces and environments um, for women to run, do other activities at night. So that's just one example of there's such power in sharing your story and it can create such a ripple effect. And Latoya, like we are so grateful to to have you be a voice um, as an ambassador in the Runners Alliance program. Thank you. Um, you know, that's I hope that a lot of us, because I mean, you know, the 84% uh, is a scary number um, yes. when you survey 2,000 people and 84%. And if we go into the other layers, that sometimes some it could be higher. That rate could be much higher um, than what was documented. You know, because sometimes we don't realize that there are a lot of gray areas when it comes to run, runner safety. You know, uh, you know, being catcalled is actually mm-hmm. is a is a violent act. Um, you know, to be to be you know called in an area where maybe it's a little sketchy, you already feel heightened. You know, and then we're, um, you know, as women, we're suggested these Band-Aid techniques, you know, well, don't run with headphones, don't wear a ponytail, someone can grab you, you know, you almost don't, you feel like your body's an entire betrayal and a violation, you know, when you're told these things and we can just, we watch men do this with such freedom that mm-hmm. our body is the thing that's betraying us uh, and making us almost, like, it's almost like telling someone, well, if you didn't do this or you were asking for it and it's your body, that is the thing that's making, that's telling you these things. And that's the toxicity that we need to remove from the conversation. You know, uh, it is yeah. very scary that so many of us and myself included, like the New York City Marathon, and it's terrible to admit that I would say that that was light compared to the actual act of being sexually assaulted um in my personal experience i can i cannot say that for someone else that's listening to this and they say oh you know one is not worse than the other but there are certain experiences of my own that you know uh, that i associate that even me i have a hard time with adjusting to my menstrual um and it's much more than just endometriosis my first kiss came from a sexual predator when i was about nine or ten and i blocked it out of my head so much that I, the only things I can remember is that if this guy actually approached me in my face, I wouldn't know what he looked like. I know what he smells like. I still have a phobia of certain things. It is hard to be in a culinary industry where you have a problem with touching black bags. And that's a personal demon that I've been working on for a number of years, you know, um, knowing that I'm a person who loves books and I still have a fear of going inside of a library that I feel hesitant because that's where I met my sexual predator. You know, these are the great areas that can strip a person um, and could make something that's just so, that appears light to someone else, but it it carries a weight. For me, the, the way that I, the first step of getting past it, I used to sign up for the Brooklyn Half just so I would be able to run parts of that route um, to see the library. And that was the way that I would silently get a part of my voice back. And am I fully co- recovered? I don't think I ever will be, you know, um, because sometimes we think that, oh, okay, well, you know, speaking up about it is going to be the cure. And the reality of it is none of this is guaranteed to provide a cure. But what it does is by addressing it, 
it gives you that that one piece of the puzzle or maybe a main piece of the puzzle to be able to feel liberated and fighting back to say that no this is not okay sometimes silence will kill you and when other people do not acknowledge your pain that is just as paralyzing if not more because it's almost like a justified violent act that's being committed against you and this is the reason why you know I continue to advocate so hard. I don't look at it as an option. I feel like this is something that needs to be done. If I have the courage and I have the power to be able to speak up, then I may not be able to bring everyone in, but there's at least one who's listening and that's what matters. Latoya, I wanna thank you so much for sharing all of that. I mean, it's just so brave and strong and I know it's, it helps so many people to hear that because the reality is like a lot of women who experience trauma and violence, it's silent. Like you struggle in silence. We don't really often talk about it. And I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's so powerful how you bring up that running can be a way to kind of reclaim that power, reclaim your own power. And so that's, again, it comes back to the safety piece. If you are trying to regain a sense of safety, but running is not a safe place for women. It kind of puts us in this vicious cycle, I think. Definitely. You know, when you, when you cannot feel liberated doing something that is accessible to many, um, you know, whether you may be able-bodied or not, that just the idea, idea that you cannot explore the space without this, question of, do you have a chaperone? <laughs> do you have a male counterpart to uh, to come outside with you? You know, the, the one of the statistics that um, that I was reminded of came from that, um, that first Runners Alliance um, conference. And forgive me, I did not remember her name exactly. Um, but she brought up the statistic of from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. tends to be the hour that uh, a lot of these attacks happen. And most people, when they see my Instagram stories, they see me running outside at nighttime. They're just like, oh my God, you're just running outside with nobody with you. And I'm just like, no, like I feel liberated, you know, running at nighttime. And I start getting the frantic messages everywhere. And it's not just something that happens from the female pasta male populace now feel like they are designed to protect me you know well mm-hmm. i hope that you're out there you, you told your husband um why isn't your husband out there with you and i'm just like maybe i'm the person who could protect my husband if, if something happens yes. you know, I'm, like i mean i'm the power lifter in the family you know my <laughs> husband <laughs> you know i love him this not to disparage him but i'm the power lifter in the running family. next to me <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, so it's uh, it's a it's a very interesting narrative when I read those comments, especially the ones that that are stemmed from fear about me being safe. You know, they're like, put away your phone, don't don't do that. Just let us know when you get back in. Do an Instagram story and get in. And I'm just like, no, like you know, there's you know, it, this can happen to anyone. And that, and the thing is, for me as a woman, if I'm having a hard time speaking up about sexual assault, and I still stammer when I talk about my own sexual assault, then I, it makes me almost dig into the question of what about the men who's been sexually assaulted? Mm-hmm. You know, do they feel fragile or insecure in their masculinity if it does happen to them? Because there's no way that we can say that there are no male victims out there. And maybe that's another area that can be explored oh, at a yeah. deeper point, you know? So there's just so many things that we do not talk about, but there is a freedom uh, and a sigh of relief when there's someone out there that else that can say, me too. 
you know, and yeah. you have a new community from that alone. And yeah, think- 100%. And yeah, I mean, I think that idea of men, sorry, I'll, I'll go back to you, Taylor, but <laughs> I, I think that idea of like, you know, men and what men face is also, it's important because it is true. I mean, there's a larger percentage of women who face sexual assault and who face harassment, but I think, yeah, it is important to mention that there are also men. It's not just a women's issue it's you know non-binary folks and men so yeah that's that's important thank you for mentioning that sorry what were you gonna say taylor oh no i mean absolutely men have a place in this conversation and i think back to to my experience um a couple years ago uh i um long story short i basically caught a guy filming me in a trail bathroom when I was running in Austin, broad daylight, 11 a.m., I was running with a friend. I popped in to, to use the bathroom in a very like crowded space um, with runners like coming in and out. And this guy had been like in the stall next to me and I don't know how long he had been there, but I basically caught him like filming me as I was using the bathroom. And I chose the fight response. Um, <laughs> I started screaming, ran after him, um, but he had like parked his car right outside the bathroom, I'm assuming, anticipating needing a quick getaway. I like screamed at him, shoved him into the side of his car. I just, I wasn't even thinking, I was just so angry. I wasn't thinking about whether he had a weapon or anything. I just chose fight. Anyway, he like pushed me back, uh, was able to get in his car when I was shoved back and drive away. But like in that process, like five women who happened to be at the bathroom also ran after him which was really actually very encouraging they didn't even know what happened but they just knew that I was in trouble yeah so he got away and uh I called the police filed a report went through that whole process um and about like six months later I realized that I was like dealing with well, not, not just six months later, like very soon after I realized I was dealing with a lot of trauma from that experience and mm-hmm. afraid to run by myself, afraid to like use restrooms. And I decided to write about it. So I wrote an essay, which was published in Runner's World. Uh, I think it was 2018, all the years and things blur together at this point. <laughs> um, but some of the responses, especially from like male runner friends that I have, were especially encouraging because I think like when I talked about um, that fear that a lot of like women experience when they go out by themselves and are in certain situations when they're running, um, a lot of like my male runner friends and a lot of men out there never have to think about that. They never have to worry about these things or, you know, whether they're going to need to defend themselves, whether, you know, like a guy will be around the corner or, you know, anything like that. And And so I think for them to hear and understand what that fear um, feels like for for women was really impactful because a lot of them responded to me saying like, I had no idea that, you know, that you guys feel that way, that you have to think about this. I'm going to work really hard to like look out for your, for, you know, all of my female friends that run and, you know, try to be more active about you know, not just being a bystander and, and, you know, offering to, to run with my friends and offering to be there for them and be that support. And I think like that it's going to take that it's going to take men really thinking outside of their running experience, right. um, to look out for, you know, others in the running community. 
Right. It's not mm -hmm. just a woman's remedy or something that we have to fix. It's something that a community has to fix, and that includes men. You know, we don't want men to feel like they're removed from the conversation, and instead, we want to invite them in to understand the layers. I, I teach my son every day. You know, not just you know if you see a woman being attacked to help them, to how to have respect for women and people who may not identify, just anybody that that may not may or may not look like you, to have that level of respect for them and if it ever is a situation a situation arises where you are called on to help then you know how to help accordingly maybe it does not mean to go out there and punch the person in the face or pin them down maybe it means that you put you pick up that phone to you know call for help maybe it means that you are going to respect that person who was violated that if they ask you to just be there and not to say anything to respect that moment as respect that rawness the sometimes people immediately think that what we need is for someone to speak and tell our stories and honestly it can remove the layers of shrimp that we're trying to preserve especially when it's just happening or we're re-triggered from mm -hmm. something or a variable that's presented to us. So instead of speaking over us, respect our stories, respect our narratives, do not feel so entitled to protecting us that you are not listening to the needs that's being put out there. So if we're asking at that moment, no, I do not want you to play, you know, big brother at this moment and go out there and find a bully and put him in, you know, put him in a corner. No, maybe that's not what your your role is at that moment. If you, because every, every community, regardless of if you're marginalized mm -hmm. or not, we all have the ability to be an ally. And when we are called on to be an ally, most times it's not going to have a big sign saying, hey, help is needed right here. It's going to present itself in the most unpredictable circumstances, but you can mm -hmm. always train every and live your life every single day as if, you know, one of these days, I'm not gonna know when it's gonna happen, but when it does, this is how I can actually contribute, you know, to helping someone else. Yeah, and I wanna get back to that idea of allyship. But first of all, I want to say thank you also, Taylor, for sharing that story. And I remember reading it in, I think you said it was in Runner's World. Um, yes. And yeah, I, I remember the day that I read it. I think it was 2018 and very vividly because I remember being shocked by it, being amazed by the strength in your reaction, but also recognizing the fear that I have had while running and the fear that a lot of women have while running in it. So Thank you for sharing that very brave story as well. well and of course, and as a woman, I mean, I want to get back to the idea of allyship. I've been told many times to not run alone places. And I've been told, you know, I've been traveling somewhere. I've been told to run loops and loops around like a small park near wherever I'm staying. I've carried mace on many situations. And the thing is, as women, we want to feel safe in the moment. And a lot of times taking these precautions, they make us feel safe in the moment, but also they put the onus on us to mm -hmm. make ourselves feel safe. How do you balance that contradiction of women want to feel safe in the moment? They might need to take some of the responsibility, but how do we make it so that there are allies, so that there are changes and that maybe one day, eventually women don't have to carry mace when they're running in certain situations and the onus doesn't have to be on women. 
Yeah, you know, because um, the thing is, like, here, here's the thing about carrying around a weapon. Um, a weapon is as powerful as its owner. And what a lot of people don't realize, um, and I learned this just through, like, my previous um, career many years ago was in working in the Department of Corrections, ironically. Um, I was not um, an officer, but I was just a civilian staff. But what I've learned through working in that environment for almost two years is that sometimes we carry these weapons and these weapons are actually used against us. So if you do not know how or have not been trained how to actually protect yourself, that item to protect you and guard you could be the thing that can actually harm you or even unfortunately take your own life. So, you know, telling women to carry around a pocket knife or um, mace and if that item falls, especially when you go through that fight, flight, or freeze, and you do not know, it doesn't matter how many training sessions you have. I mean, my hands, like I, I've, I've learned how to box, I learned how to, you know, do basic self-defense moves. And each of the times that I've been sexually assaulted, because I'm a multiple sexual assault survivor, my reaction was different every single time. You know, um, and, and it doesn't matter about like sometimes we think like, oh, well, you know, you were a kid when some of this happened. No, I was an adult as well when it happened the second time and it happened a third time. And every time I was not sure of can I defend myself? I know I was trained on this. And then you go down this rabbit hole of I had this item on me, but now I don't know how to use it or why did my body do this? There are certain things that just our brain, sometimes it just shuts off um, where it doesn't do it. Or in Taylor's case, where it's just completely reactionary of I have to save and defend myself because I know something is wrong and your body and your mind will just take you there. The, the level of ownership is not only for women. We need to teach as a society, need to teach people more that men shouldn't rape. It's just as simple as that. You know, that conversation, that dialogue, and that allyship happens within your own home. You are the biggest advocate that you will ever meet. Your reflection is the biggest advocate that you will ever meet. And people in your immediate circle will have trust more for the person that they actually know in their everyday life than they will from a magazine, from someone like me who happens to be in the public eye, from the local celebrity or the mainstream celebrity. So that education um, is really going to be the biggest weapon that we can ever hold on to. Educating and re-educating an audience who's been around long enough that you know society has groomed women to believe that it is only our problem to, to basically keep ourselves safe in ways I feel like it's much easier to educate you know an impressionable child than it is to um, with an adult with who has lived in experiences because they've been conditioned for so long that this is the way that it works and society just has to roll with it we also other factors that may come into play may be cultural differences religious mm -hmm. um, differences and these are the great areas that sometimes we don't talk about so when you find yourself kind of stuck, sometimes we do have to rely on advisors who are in, you know, in certain communities. This is how intersectionality plays into, you know, runner safety. You know, that maybe there are topics that even I, who happens to be black and queer, I cannot speak for trans people. And mm -hmm. that's where you have someone, you know, someone else who can speak up on that, you know, that behalf because they have more of a specialization or a personal attachment and history who can speak up on and say, well, this is how I handle it as a member of this community. And here's how several others and that and those smaller sub communities 
can create and brainstorm different techniques on how to apply it. We are not pantyhose. We're not designed to be pantyhose. There, there's no one size fit all when it comes down to preventing sexual assault. But the more that we talk about it, the more that we explore the uncomfortable layers and the issues within it, the more that we can actually figure out solutions to it. Yeah, absolutely. We are not pantyhose. I think that that's a metaphor that sums up so much of what you've both said and also just the idea of the runner's alliance. And I want to hear, because I don't want to keep you two forever. I'm realizing I could talk to you all day, but I don't want to put that on (laughs) both of you. What is coming up for the runner's alliance? What can we look forward to in the future? Yes. Um, I, uh, probably should have touched on this more earlier when you were asking about the specific um, initiatives. We have, um, you know, done two webinars so far. The first on um, you know, running safety, which um, Latoya was a panelist on, and then the next uh, after that was LGBTQ plus runner experience. Latoya also participated in that, as well as Addie. We had Matt Lano and Chris Mosier um, on it, and it was such an incredible discussion. Um, and then today uh, we actually have another one coming up that's focusing um, more on diversity in running and why that is uh, critical in the discussion on runner safety. So we're we're doing you know all of these webinars um, in the next couple months, but we're also you know featuring more stories um, you know within Runners Alliance that really dive into um, the experiences of different runners uh, facing the issue of runner safety, um, you know, different ways we can help uh, foster discussion about increasing runner safety, creating safer spaces. Um, so definitely more articles coming out. We also have a newsletter. Um, so if you wanna stay up to date on, you know, what is happening, different initiatives, campaigns, um, places and organizations that you can also donate to. Um, there are so many that are doing incredible work in this space the Vanessa T. Marcotte Foundation being one of them. Vanessa T. Marcotte was tragically killed while running in 2016 and her cousin and best friend started a foundation in her honor. And so, you know, that's one organization that is educating on self-defense, um, hosting, you know, webinars on topics like to- toxic masculinity. They just did that one recently, which was incredible just to gain an understanding of you know, what that means, what men are, you know, many men are raised to think and how we need to rewire that, uh, you know, despite the dark, I mentioned them earlier. Um, and so the newsletter and, and the articles will, you know, highlight a lot of these organizations um, that you can give back to and help contribute to creating safer spaces for, for all runners out there. Amazing. Sounds like so many incredible things to look forward to. So I'll have to link all of that in the show notes. And when I wrap up these episodes, I usually do rapid fire, but I think we've talked so much about the Runners Alliance (laughs) that I want to do like something a little different. I want to ask you both, what is one thing that you're looking forward to in your own life right now, aside from the Runners Alliance? Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, Helping my son see this year through. Um, it's definitely one of my biggest goals. And like, that's not like, you know, like a professional goal, just as a mom, um, to, to parents everywhere who are trying to fit more hats than they even um, can fit on their head at this moment. Hang in there, you know, give your, um, give the teacher some grace, um, have a little bit of patience and 
uh, what I like to implement in this household are coffee breaks um, for my son and I to be able to have conversations about rough things. Um, we schedule that out at least three days a week. Maybe yours may not be a coffee break, but maybe it's just an honest moment. It is where I do not censor him in whatever way that it comes out. If he says that he needs a break, I try to see it through, even if it's in the middle of class. None of what we're going through during this quarantine is something that we've experienced in our uh, in our everyday lives, or even in uh, I can actually say in this century we have not gone through this. So it is going to be very new for us, um, you know, whether young or older, and we're all handling it the best way that we know how. So what I'm reminding my son is to have some grace. Um, and while I remind him of that, I'm reminding that to myself because I'm really good at giving out advice. Um, but following my own advice, I'm the, like the biggest hypocrite on the planet when it comes down to constructive <laughs> mm -hmm. advice. Um, so really, I want him to do more than just survive it. I want him to thrive in it. And to when we actually exit it, to not forget that he overcame an incredible part of history. We are literally living in the middle of history. Um, you know, so whatever way that we have to acknowledge that we are owning a superpower right now mm -hmm. um, to make it through this pandemic. So if it means like right now in our household, there are days where I just mentally tap out and I'm like, hey, dinner's at 11 o'clock. We've implemented things like midnight dinners in this house just to make it fun um, in here. I did 3 a.m. workouts for the first two months of quarantine because mentally that's just where my mind was at. And now we've thrown out the old version of normal and we've revamped it and turned it into an entire remix of this is our new normal until the next wave of a normalcy kicks in. And, you know, so just, just have some grace. And that's not just for my son, but for all of us to really just have some grace and some patience with, our, with ourselves during this time in history. I love that so much. And I know I joked at the beginning before we went on air that I wanted to be in your apartment for quarantine because <laughs> of all the food you were making your son. But like now I'm like, that's not even a joke. I'm serious. Like I would be so motivated. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. amazing. No, you, you definitely know you, you're invited to the house and saying like, you know, bring your mask <laughs> and they'll take it off at the table. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. How about you, Taylor? Yeah, Latoya, you have inspired me to like think out of the box as far as our menu goes. <laughs> like you made oxtail the other day. Or oh my gosh. I was yes. like, what? What is this? <laughs> um, yeah, I would say I'm excited. So I, I'm a volunteer coach at, at Northwestern with the women's cross country team. And I have absolutely loved this experience. I, I joined in January um, 2020. So I got to be there with them for like about two and a half months before we really went into oh. lockdown, um, which was really unfortunate. But thank goodness for Zoom. You know, we, yeah. we communicated over Zoom until we resumed in-person practice in September. And, you know, if you're not following like NCAA, the Big Ten basically outside of football um, is, is not uh, competing um, this fall out of, you know, safety precautions with the COVID outbreak. But we've done, you know, several time trials to kind of simulate that competitive environment for them and keep them motivated. And it's been really amazing to witness that growth in such a um, challenging time in so many ways. Like they are a different team than they were last year as far as, you know, not just fitness, but also 
you know, having um, really important conversations around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I'm not sure every team is doing that, but I'm so proud yeah. that we are. And they just had their uh, NCAA regional time trial uh, last week and almost every single runner PR'd by 20 to 60 seconds. So that was really cool. And it was cool just, it's cool just to know that, you know, fingers crossed we return to competition in January. Um, but just like knowing how much they've grown and, you know, to hopefully be able to see it play out um, on the cross country course soon against other teams will be really amazing. So I feel very like fortunate to be in, you know, this team environment and, and contributing as much as I can. Yeah, that gives me a lot of hope to see like kind of all the good things that are happening even during this time and that the Northwestern's team having so many conversations on diversity and equity inclusion. So that is great to hear. My last question that I ask everyone is why is sport a powerful platform for social change? Mm. That's a good question. Wow. Um, in the in the time in history where a lot of companies have taken on this apolitical standpoint, I think we need to acknowledge that sports is absolutely political. Um, it is something that some of us are either running away from something or running into something. Um, I've learned that a lot through ultra running, that most of us are finding ways to cope with our everyday lives through sport. So why not use a platform that some of us look at as a safe haven to be able to discuss and dissect some of these things? The reality of it is that when you go to some run groups, you'll realize that you may be around people who look exactly like you. And or you might be in an environment where you have one or two or maybe many who do not look like you. There's an opportunity, whether we look at it or not, there's an opportunity to grow and change and expand our conversations way beyond what is just comfortable at our dinner table. Um, getting to learn and know someone new and different and to not look at it as the things that keep us together, but look at the things that might be tearing us apart and know now it's almost like a living manuscript of how we can improve not just our lives, but the people around us. I couldn't see that in 2013 when I started running. I didn't look at myself as someone someone that people would you know aspire to admire. Um, I, I looked at myself as very small. And even at times I still catch myself where I'm like, girl, you need to be a little bit kinder to yourself and the way you speak to yourself. But when I acknowledge things like the Runner's World magazine putting me on the cover right along with three other ambassadors of color, that is a vehicle to help others see a version of themselves or to see other people who may not be in their communities be on the cover. And now they can say, me too. I can also be, and I, you know, I am not limited in my possibilities because sometimes the visuals are super important to be able to see a plus size woman like me with a potty mouth, <laughs> you know, on a, on a cover was something that I couldn't even visualize in myself. You know, plus size people are tend to be the people that's funny. The ones that make people um, laugh and make them feel good about themselves, but maybe not so much to make themselves feel uplifted to see that for a certain populace, it helps to see someone taken seriously, to see someone who happens to be Black. For instance, one of the scenarios that came with being on um, the Runner's World cover is that a little girl literally came up to me and was like, I don't know who you are, but I know that track. 
And that gave me joy because that track is my neighborhood. To know that my neighborhood is being reflected in that, I became a living metaphor for it because my placement there means that I represent in the community. So it's not, sometimes it's not even about the person. It's about the identity of my home is here. When you can get a sense of home and something that you see, something that you hear, something that we're talking about, it gives the invitation for others to join as well. That's so beautiful. So in full circle too, you know, you began talking about your neighborhood and your track. Yeah, like that, that was, that was definitely like, I love like, um, and like, I, I can't thank Runner's World enough for um, pairing me up with the photographer that I was paired up. Park is um, incredible. Um, and the one thing that she did was um, she asked me where do I want to run? And I was like, I would like to explore different areas of my neighborhood. And through it, every visual that's been put up thus far, I was able to attach nine-year-old me 12 year old me, the people that I know within this area, everyone who's seen the cover, who's opened up the issue, they were able to say, hey, that's Crown Heights. Wait, hold up, that's right around the corner. Do you remember? And it's like, it, it's the, the art of storytelling is so powerful, whether you're doing it through visuals, through sound or through reading. We want to be able to relate and adapt and fall in to something that's either familiar or some place that we actually want to be. 100%. Yeah. How about you, Taylor? Do you have any thought on why sport is a powerful platform for social change? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen this as an example, so many times, you know, especially in the Olympic movement. But mm. um, I mean, at the end of the day, athletes are human beings first. Yeah. And I feel like that gets really lost a lot of times. Um, even by the athletes themselves, I think, you know, they get so wrapped up in that identity of, of being an athlete. And, and as a volunteer coach, I really, um, you know, try and remind our athletes that you are a human being and you're going to graduate and you're going to go into the world and, you know, do amazing things. But I think like at the end of the day, sport provides this incredible, you know, platform to, to grow and get to be like your best self in so many ways. And it also like sets a stage for, um, you know, fighting for social issues that like you really can't get anywhere else in a lot of ways. I mean, I think of, I think of Jordan Marie Daniel, um, you know, running the 2019 Boston Marathon, this huge race, one of the biggest races in the world, thousands of runners and, you know, obviously televised around the world. Um, she took that opportunity to run not just for her, she was running for 26 missing and murdered indigenous women to spirit and relatives, but she was the body to, you know, have MMIW painted on her arms and her legs. She had a red handprint painted over her mouth to like represent, um, you know, the indigenous people who were silenced by violence. She ran a marathon dedicating each mile to a different person and, you know, for her to use that marathon as an opportunity to raise awareness to this epidemic and create more conversation, create discussion, talk about, you know, ways that this ep epidemic needs to be addressed. So for her to, to do that and use the marathon as a way to push for justice for her people, 
that is just one example of the power that the platform of sport can have. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to recognize that at the end of the day, like we are all human beings. We are part of different communities with many layers and sport is a great way to push for change in a lot of ways. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what both of you have said. And I just want to thank you so much for this conversation. I'm sweating, literally. I'm like so moved by both of you. And I'm just so excited to see everything that you both do personally, as well as with the Runners Alliance. So thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. LaToya and Taylor are amazing. I am so grateful for them and what they are doing with the Runners Alliance. There is tons more information and resources available online at runnersworld.com slash runnersalliance. You can find links to many of the topics discussed in this episode over in the show notes at sidiousmag.com under podcasts in the Social Sport tab. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you went over to Apple Podcasts and left Social Sport a rating and a review. It will take you about three minutes, but it will make all of the minutes in my day. And please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at Social Sport Pod. I always love hearing from you. Thanks for joining me today. Keep sporting and keep resisting.